0: Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. I could not be more excited to bring you today's conversation with Dr. Robert Higgins. He played football at Dartmouth, so he gets gets sports. He also had three kids who were fantastic athletes in their own right. I have to say that I had the great privilege of working with all three of them, Dr. Higgins, his kids, his whole family, fantastic people. It truly was a privilege. But we pick up today's conversation talking about a whole host of things, leadership being probably the primary through line through the conversation. But let me give you a little bit about Dr. Higgins so you understand why he was the right guy to have this conversation with. So he's an expert in cardiac surgery, transplantation, etc., etc., etc. He's a medical doctor who, at the front of his career, was a director of heart and lung transplantation at the Henry Ford Hospital. I met him when he was at Ohio State University. He was then the chairman of the Department of Surgery, as well as surgeon-in-chief and director of the Comprehensive Transplant Center at Westner Medical Center. He then went on to become surgeon-in-chief at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. There, he was also the William Stewart Halstead Professor of Surgery and the Director of the Department of Surgery at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Big announcement, Mass General Brigham names Robert Higgins President of Brigham and Women's Hospital. If you don't know what that is, it might be the best hospital on the planet out in Boston. It's just such an incredibly hard earned and well-deserved honor. But here's the deal, what, what he has developed is not only an impressive resume, but in his wake, there are many lives he has both saved and inspired. He treats patients, of course, but he also leads leaders. And you know that's, that's what we focus on today. I think, I don't know what the bigger contribution to society might be, those he's literally saved or those he's empowered to save others, think creatively, become their best selves. But in short, I know that he's influenced my approach, my life, and I, I'm just really excited to share him with our audience. So without further ado, a leader among leaders, friend and mentor, Dr. Robert Higgins.
1: Well, of course, leadership requires followers. That's right. And I think you've probably heard me say that before. You have to make a connection with people. It is a people business, whether we take care of our patients or our our other colleagues and professionals. And um, a sense of appreciation for their contributions and their well-being, um, I think, um, highlights what leaders should be thinking about in building teams. Um, It's not just asking for the most that they can give. But it's also helping them nurture their own well-being so that they can continue to give above and beyond the call of duty. And so these some of these concepts are very cliche, but they really do matter in workplaces, whether it be business or law or finance, but in healthcare for sure. Uh, there's a statement, of course, uh, heal thyself, physician. It mm-hmm. means that we must be well prepared to, you know, take on the tasks that we have, have good mental health, good physical health, so that we can provide. Great care for our patients, and so I, I think that's an important aspect of this. And um, I'm proud to have the opportunity
0: to kind of emphasize that uh, in talking to you. Well, I, I, you, we could not be more on the same page with all of this. You just understand it at a depth that I'm I'm working toward. Um, to give our listeners a little bit of uh, background on you, can we go back to December 1st, 1993? Get a little bit of your history. Well, uh, that was a culmination of. Uh, many, many
1: positive things that happened in my life. Uh, And Jim, you probably know this. My dad passed when I was young. My mom raised three boys who were pretty much hellraisers, and provided us with the best educational opportunities and forced us to not only commit to our own well-being, but to serving our communities in which we lived. And that was a a theme that uh, she and my grandparents uh, instilled in us. And they gave us great educational opportunities, Ivy League educations, and then um, I knew that my dad had work to do, and so uh, he died prematurely, and uh, I wanted to continue in his footsteps as a physician, and uh, I was enamored with the cardiac uh, space and transplantation, uh, primarily because my wife, uh, who was then a transplant coordinator, Molly, um, uh, stimulated me to want to be the best I could be, and uh, so uh, I went on to get my training and uh, was really a afforded a great opportunity to start a heart transplant program and a lung transplant program at a underrepresented community in Detroit, the Henry Ford Hospital, which was, again, serving those who had not had great access to these kinds of extraordinary things. And so care approved the heart and lung transplant program there. And uh, I have to say that it was among the most rewarding uh, personal and professional experiences of my life for that first seven years. We started our family there, and um, it's a very special place in our hearts, uh, Southeast Michigan. But then uh, the rest of the story has been uh, fantastic opportunities, not that I was ever looking for another job, but uh, they're presented to me for uh, progressive leadership, the importance of building teams, and applied some of those things uh, to um, reinforce medical teams of multidisciplinary professionals. And so I was very fortunate to build successful teams at places like Richmond and then got recruited to Chicago where I was a department chair and then on at Ohio state mm-hmm. and now here at Johns Hopkins, um, uh, over the past five and a half years as the surgeon in chief and never in my wildest imagination would I've ever thought, uh, this, uh, storied program. You may know that Hopkins is the place where the surgical training paradigm started.
0: I did actually. Year. Yeah. yeah.
1: In 1889, a gentleman by the name of Halstead created Mm -hmm. this idea that physicians should no longer do house calls, but rather they should work in a place where patients would come for concentrated and expert opinion and care. And so he created this concept of a surgical residency where people were in residence at Hopkins and the patients came to us for their care. And now over the last 130 years, that has been fine-tuned. It is still the paradigm by which we train surgical house staff and officers to provide specialized care in heart and transplant and general surgery and orthopedics and neurosurgery uh, using those same paradigms. It, it's a journey that's really a challenge, but uh, at the end of it, uh, many patients benefit and uh, it's of great personal and professional Satisfaction. So I'm I'm honored to join you, of course, and to speak about that journey.
0: Well, yeah, it, it's an inspiring one. Um, it, it truly is. And and to really highlight that, can you elaborate just a bit on on your dad? That what a powerful thing to say to, to say that there was sort of still work to be done. I know a little bit of his story, but I'd love well, being... my, he and my mom met
1: in Nashville, and he was going to Meharry, which is one of the few places where African American could get a medical education. In the 50s, Um, my mom was in school uh, at a historically black school across the street and um, they got engaged, got married and he moved in. I was proud to say he served in the U.S. Navy for uh, three years, went to Camp Pendleton. And that's where I was born. And then uh, after he um, stepped out of the Navy, went back to practicing medicine and unfortunately um, had had a car accident in 1964 and was killed. Um, somebody ran a stop sign. And uh, unfortunately, he had no life insurance at the time. He had a number of offices and professional commitments, but the assumption he was going to live forever. And so unfortunately, my mom moved back to um, Albany, New York, where she grew up, was a ROTC, um, because I think we needed that kind of discipline, not having a dad around. And as African-American men in an urban environment um, in the 60s, it was a tough time. Sure. And, uh, I was fortunate to get lots of opportunities. There was the major of the cadet battalion and uh, captain of a couple sports and played three sports. And that was the expectation that you participated.
0: What, what were your three? You played football,
1: football, hockey and baseball.
0: Oh, nice. Nice.
1: And then I got recruited to Dartmouth as a running back. And, uh, that was the only school I ever looked at and, uh, got in early decision and it was fantastic. Great place. My roommate, um, was a famous football, uh, was Dave Shula, Don Shula's son.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which
1: was pretty cool. And, uh, lived together for four years. And so football was in my blood and, uh, it was a fantastic opportunity Played, We won the Ivy's two years in a, uh, two out of four years. And yeah. so I had knee injury as a sophomore, and then knew that, um, I had to do something academically to, to have a future and got serious about my studies uh, as a junior and a senior and, uh, had great academic, uh, Opportunities and accomplishment, and that led me to get into Yale Medical School, and that was a great place.
0: And um, the rest is kind of hit the history that you've heard already. Dartmouth to Yale. This is sort of a side question. Is there any rivalry there? Is that uh, is there inter Ivy rivalry or were there's you? A, there's, a huge,
1: there's a huge. There is a huge inter
0: Ivy rivalry. Yeah.
1: Most Dar- Dartmouth was um, historically, you know, kind of up in the woods. Uh, it was founded as a school for native Americans. Um, the more traditional Ivies always kind of frowned on Dartmouth because it was kind of a rough and ready place, but they always were the best sports teams. The, Mm. they still, they still have the record for the most Ivy championships since the creation of the Ivy league. Is that right? Maybe in the fifties. And, um, they continue to distinguish themselves. And my son, John went there and played and, um, had a great career there as well
0: yeah, he did did they win while he was there at all did they win a?
1: they had a tough time when he was there did they but he learned a lot about uh you know persevering through difficult times and he got a great experience and again prepared
0: him for medical school uh and sure. his career so it's all good for sure the um well that, that's an interesting you, you mentioned whether um, you know john really loving his time or you uh, having yes been part of multi multiple championships, but also having that knee injury, I've been thinking a lot about you know essentially you know there, there's this incredible motivation in sport to to go win, for lack of a better term. Um, that's there for everybody at least at the at the onset, um, but when it doesn't go the way that you want, um, can you tell me about a little bit some of the lessons that can be learned from that? You know, I was a scout team football. I was always the
1: other teams' running back in practice, going against our first team defense, and earn their respect. Words are valuable, but actions speak louder than those words. So you have to live that, and you have to kind of prove to people that okay, I'm in this, so that you will be the best surgeon, the best doctor, the best scientist, the best child who grows up to be a, uh, a successful lawyer or a business person or a or a uh, physician and i think that's what uh, distinguishes some of these uh, opportunities
0: it, it just makes it just makes such good sense that that i continue to come back to the question you know where when it doesn't happen where where have we lost it where where do you think people sort of go astray well i think people um, tend to
1: look in the mirror and say it's okay it's about me and they they get be pretty singularly focused on their own success um, we do have a Tendency in the world, kind of a me generational perspective. It's about me, it's about my success, it's about what am I going to get mine, as though uh, that should be the only focus. And unfortunately, in my experience, that leads us to self serving behavior, which isn't really, um, and in some circumstances, uh, it might be value added. But for most of our, my collective experiences in healthcare, it's a multidisciplinary team approach that is going to save the patient's life in cardiac surgery or in, uh, in, in the academic world. It's not the individual contribution that makes all the difference. It's the collective vision for what you are trying to accomplish that makes the difference. So I think that's um, part of the challenge. And when you don't have that and people are singularly focused on their success and their well-being, that leads to a self-serving strategy that is
0: uh, often not productive. Again, I just, I'm so, I'm taking my constant notes here because it's just, it's so true. If you heard the book range, it's it's a new book range by, by a guy named David Epstein. And he talks about the value of, he talks about multidisciplinary teams and things like that. But, but he sort of laments, I won't put words in his mouth, this idea of sort of over specialization and self-serving behavior. And he actually mentions that neuroscientists, believe it or not, from, from, among, from among whatever, everyone they surveyed, were some of the most embedded in their space. And, you know, there's some there's some logic there that makes good sense. If you're gonna be operating on someone's brain, perhaps you should be hyper focused. That makes sense. But but he also said it leads to the greatest amount of like you, like blind spots. You miss things when you're fully inside of yourself.
1: Well, I'm, I'm taking notes as well. I'm writing that book down because likely yeah. I'm going to give it to some of my neurosurgery colleagues
0: and
1: see what they think about it.
0: A hundred percent. Well, well and, and, and I'm sure they'll come back to, you know, there's this idea. We always use the term tool selection. There are times when you got to have the blinders on and boom, laser focus. And that makes complete sense. But if you, if you only live there. You are probably missing a lot of the big picture, and and man, that's something that you you seem to be able to do so well. Truly really loving and and generous father and family person. Well, I, I'm
1: the best person asked that probably is my my wife Molly.
0: She's a rock star,
1: and um, she usually says uh, in a variety of tones and um, intensity, <laughs> "Check check your ego at the door," or she'll say, "I'm not one of." Your employees, and so immediately the the um, the bar is uh, kind of set that uh, again on my personal life and my connection with my family um, has to take on. I hope the same temperament, but you know, kind of caring, thoughtful, but not necessarily. Uh, I'm not the guy in charge so much here as I am at work, right? <laughs> and I and that and that's okay. Uh, I like being a, a follower a little bit, uh, and uh, she's, she's really in charge here. She's the Surgeon in Chief of our household, there you go. And, <laughs> and, and, and everybody knows that. There's no debate, Yeah, which is fine, which is fine.
0: So it sounds there, – there's two things I heard there. One is, is maybe pulling back into oneself and being able to recognize uh, – maybe it's when you walk through the door. Maybe it's the drive home that that's behind me. I'm no longer uh, the top boss here. Um, but also having a really good partner seems like an important piece of this.
1: There, there, isn't, there isn't a day or an important decision that I make that I don't take her counsel. It's a little bit lonely when you're at the top of your game or you're the leader or everybody's expecting you to kind of make a decision and or come up with a solution. Uh, it's hard sometimes. I can't call my boss and ask him, hey, what do you think? Although I, I have that rapport with my boss who is the CEO of the health system, an $8 billion corporation. And it's hard to ask your colleagues, although I do take the counsel of my uh, contemporaries, it's hard to ask you direct reports, even though we do listen and have listening sessions with them. So there are times when you have to make unique um, decisions about things, whether it be professional or academic or um, oftentimes disciplinary. Or fiscal, where you you need the advice of someone who doesn't have a vested interest in that decision, and I think one of the biggest challenges for leadership is who who do you call for advice or your hmm. sounding board? So to this point, I have a coach. I have two coaches. I think everybody should have a coach. So I, I actually I, I envy you. I think that a career coach, and I'm on, I'm on the cusp of being able to make a couple really important decisions the next couple of weeks. I have a close friend who's a cardiologist who was my associate at Ohio state. Who's now at the university uh, South, uh, at Southwestern. I have a professional colleague, cardiothoracic surgeon at Mayo clinic. I have a senior associate um, chair who I will speak to next week and a fourth person who was assigned to me as a coach. I will take the counsel of all those people about these important career decisions. I think it's invaluable, but it can be lonely. Yeah. So my wife serves as kind of my, probably my best and most trusted ally and coach because she may not know all the details and nuances about my professional decisions, but she mm-hmm. knows my emotions and, and my my gut instincts and what I'm feeling about these things. And I can say to her, I'm not sure that's the right opportunity for us or Boy, that is a really cool job. What do you think? And she will give me her honest opinion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, some days it's not exactly what I want to hear. Sure. Which kind of bums me out. But <laughs> at least I know it. it's coming from a, a genuine place of
0: right.
1: um, trust and commitment to our our personal and professional
0: well-being. Yeah, there's no question that first I that's like heartwarming to hear, by the way. I mean, you guys, you're so good together. You you obviously your family is amazing. I I just I love It's not you, always Jim.
1: easy. It's not always easy, Jim, though. Because I've made some decisions that were professionally oriented that uh my mom said didn't consider my my family's best interest. Huh. When when your mom tells you that and then your wife reinforces it. Yeah. Ouch. And I I so I called my youngest guy, said, What do you think? <laughs> yeah, there you go. And he's and he he's on my side all the time, so it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I just got one person who's on my team, and yeah. then I got to say, okay, but mom says this, and you know, nana says that, and I'm not sure that's the right thing. He says, but it would be cool to go there. And I said, yeah, I know, but so you have to take some balance, and you can't yeah. take yourself too seriously. I, I don't have all the answers, obviously.
0: Well, I mean again, you're saying things that are so resonant to me and make just some, such complete sense, but but uh, the authority of you making the statement matters so much more. The the humility, like you don't have all the answers, man, of course not. Do you have probably countless times more answers than the average person? Yeah, probably so. I hope. hope. That's right. But, but, but still there's a, there's always a space. There's always a space between where you are and where you're going and and the humility to recognize the gap is is what I've found, you know? Yeah. Interestingly, um, in
1: some of these conversations recently, and I, I confide in you in the sense that some people don't necessarily accept that humility or um, consensus-driven approach to leadership as um, the way forward. I had an interesting conversation about some of these kind of opportunities, uh, and I usually, you know, lead by consensus. I'll get a group of people together—small group, large group, whatever—get their feedback. I'll put forward my idea. When I know that there's not a moral or an ethical issue that I, where I know that there's a direct answer, you got to just go that way. But if, you, if there's some interpretation to that and get feedback. So I said, so uh, in that context, I said, well, leadership requires followers. I lead by consensus generally. And this person said to me, you won't have to worry about that because you would be the one in charge. And that defined a, a unique style of leadership, an autocratic style. hmm which I have not usually favored in my journey. Right. And as you know, there are different kinds of leadership styles, autocratic, charismatic, consensus driven. And um, it's often uh, important to make sure you understand the style of leadership that someone is going to be employing in in the day-to-day operations of a enterprise, as as well as the um, expected results, because the two may be interrelated and effective.
0: Mm hmm. I think. And, and you'd call yourself, obviously, consensus driven is, is the heart of, of your leadership. Yeah, style.
1: And I, and I, I also I, I believe I'm I can be pretty persuasive. Some people say that, you know, the charismatic style. I don't know. Sure. Um, I, I try to build the relationship and then influence the decisions based upon that relationship.
0: The, the, I was I was kind of hoping you'd lead there because isn't there it, it seems even there that that it would be a toolbox. Uh, of leadership styles that fit certain situations. And I'm sure there are times where you have to be, especially when you have not to get too graphic, but when you are, when you have a hand inside of another human's body, you're not pulling the room, right? It's boom. It's your decision right there. So. no question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You have to be that way. And I think also when when you're dealing with um, ethical or moral issues, Hmm. there's no room for building a consensus necessarily or getting opinion some if something's wrong you have to stand up for what's right and uh, you have to have a moral compass that is true north and um, sometimes that's that's not that's not a debate that's just the way it's got to be and so you have to figure out how to I think adapt I think the message from my perspective without belaboring this is you have to adapt the leadership style a
0: bit to the circumstances and the and in in the environment in which you find yourself yeah there's no doubt so okay so To get real, sort of nitty gritty, you come into a place cold, and you don't have that amazing level of trust. You certainly have what we'd refer to as proof of concept, right? A resume that supports you know your expertise. But if if you're coming into a new group, what are some of the first things that you do to develop rapport and trust? We have to listen Hmm. Um, and spend time really
1: processing what people tell you, Uh, and that I believe is the first step to gaining their trust. Yeah, and that's not just okay. I'm here for 10 minutes and then I'm going to go do my thing. You have to develop that relationship and that trust with those folks. And then in your actions, I believe you have to, um, potentially, um, for big things, ask for their opinion about what they believe is the best course of action forward and provide your rationale for why you're moving in a certain direction. And then you have to be true to your word and uh, execute uh, effectively. Um, and then ultimately, uh, process and or debrief about what decisions have been made what the outcomes were and what we learned from it and then process that for the next decision if you do that with a group of people they will then trust the process as much as your leadership and eventually they'll say wow okay this guy's got pretty good instincts i'm going to trust his decision even though it's not what i would have done and' we'll, uh i'll trust that he will come back to me and ask me for my thoughts about how it worked out we had a situation here where, maybe eight months ago, one leader who was a command and control kind of person made some statements, did some things that were not in the best interest of the organization and/or the people around him. That was borne out in some specific complaints to our HR system. And um, that person believed that they were right to make those decisions, and the rest of the group didn't find it very positive. Uh, they tend to be. Racially insensitive kinds of things, and uh, it was pretty clear that this was not going to be tolerable. Yeah, and the organization appropriately so made the decision about that person, and um, that that was an important um, point in our leadership journey yeah. at this institution. And it, it, I think, it's a it's created some level of trust with yeah. employees yeah. to know now that the right thing will do. Will be done for the right reason, regardless of this person's impact or their sure resume or their you know how many surgeries they did or how influential they were or what their international reputation was. The right thing happened for the right reason, mm-hmm. and the organization stepped up. So I think that's an important
0: lesson that I've learned from. So the right thing happened for the right reason, and I and and to really sort of bring it bring it fully down home uh, to any coaches or educators listening to exactly the story that you just said, it reminds me of something that folks are confronted by. Cause I imagine the person that you're talking about was talented. I imagine that they were oh, doing world, something world, cla- world, class. world It reminds me of the all state caliber player who just won't, you know, who's maybe doing, maybe not getting on the same page with, with, with his teammates or even worse. So, you know, behaving in some sort of really unethical way. Um, do you have the guts as a coach to sit the guy who, you know, who might account for five touchdowns a game? Do you, do you, can you make a statement like that? And if you can, what an incredible ripple effect that has on one's team to forego the talent for, for, for the sake of what's ethically right. Um, those are the sort of program defining moments and organizationally defining moments that really make a leader special.
1: Yeah. I think, and and yet they are the most challenging decisions you have to make right? because they, they threaten not only your own team's success, but your, your personal success as a coach or as a leader. And yet uh, you have to be able to stand on some principle um, in that regard. Uh, You have to be a principled leader. um, Not so much so that you can't see the forest for the trees, but you've got to be able to balance these things. But when, really big things like that happen, you've got to be able to step up.
0: Well, okay. So I want to hear more about that. That's so important because, you know, we talked about how proof of concept is necessary. So how often can you make those decisions or maybe perhaps this is a, another segue into exactly what you do. You know, if, if it's, if it's clear and definitive, this is wrong. And you'd hope that the leader has the guts to say, let's get that out of our organization. But it, I think what you are probably an expert at one of the many things is the space between uh, you know, it, it, recognizing if, if there's still some place within this person to be molded, to be mentored, uh, to change. And if so, if there's this great amount of talent that is worth the leadership investment, I'd imagine that's where you would jump in.
1: Yeah. I mean, as, a, as an accountable leader, you, an accountable leader, you have to yeah. judge whether, um, the act, the, um, <clears throat> the, um, behavior is, uh adjustable and or coachable hmm. and whether it could be um, improved yeah. uh, I do think you want to give people the benefit of a doubt in this context
0: yeah.
1: but if it, it appears that it's repeated and or um, in the face of uh, being recognized as inappropriate for the organization and or for the team and it still persists um, then I think you, you have to kind of address that yeah. again you can get people coaches. Um, you can, you know, point out the issues when they when they occur, you can ask for feedback, um, but sometimes it, it doesn't resonate with the person and they right. they continue to behave in a, an unprofessional manner or, or contrary to the team's best interest. And you have to uh, address it. Uh, and that's un, that's that's unfortunate. But that's the accountable leader. If you don't if you don't address that, then it, it, it corrupts the whole spirit of the team. And so, uh, and, and, that, and that's exactly what we did in our organization. And six months later now, we're finding that people are respecting this decision, yeah, irrespective of the impact it may have had. And it turns out the team is stronger for it.
0: That's right. Right. It, it, ultimately, down the road, it seems like the team would, would grow from, from those moments. because You just mentioned that if it's in the face of feedback, um, and, and it's persistent, you know, there. And maybe this is a misalignment at the very, not in their at the behavior level, but at the very core of the person that perhaps is a misalignment, and that and that that makes sense to me. I'm gonna throw this out there. I'm I'm trying to to harvest some of this wisdom. So what I heard from you in, in the onboarding of someone you mentioned a few things: listening, but like really authentic listening, like actually taking people's thoughts and ideas into account, being transparent about your own rationales, and um, been executing and following through on what you say that you're going to do together. The debriefing thing. We, we do this and I bore a lot of people because we'll take 30 minutes to debrief every day. If that's what, you know, if, if things are happening over the course of our time together, but, but it's never wasted time. If you've got the right people doing it debriefing uh, and getting in back from others, and then essentially using that whole process and that feedback to influence the next set of decisions. It's a it's a very sort of scientific yeah. leadership model,
1: and some and sometimes you you can you can truncate some of the the process because people are anticipating that that's what's going to be necessary to be successful. Mm-hmm. The stepwise yeah. approach, and so you don't you cut you cut to the chase on the debrief. Okay, right. here's let, let me share with you what I think went wrong in this scenario, or whatever, or what was a real positive influential part of this scenario, yeah. and you and you move to it. And so but you have to be systematic and thoughtful about it. And 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 sometimes it just listen. Yeah.
0: It's and then say, well,
1: let me let me process it. And I also um we, you know, through the coaching in hockey and playing hockey, as well as watching my kids play hockey. And they and as you know, our boys played, you know, varsity hockey Nutria, which is a storied program. But mm-hmm. I was I observed many parents who were really upset about it a call or a goal or a penalty or a a hit that they thought their kid and they really went after the officials or they thought that the, you know, the coach made a bad decision by benching their kid or whatever. And, uh, and the same thing happened in baseball, you know, people really upset, you know, and, and I tried to say that we should have a 24 hour rule. And it was hard for me to do this as a parent, and as a coach, but step back and process what you saw when the emotions were so high mm-hmm. that you couldn't, you couldn't clearly make a des- decision whether it was right or wrong because you're embedded in your kid's best interest right. or your team's best interest. that your emotions got the best of you. And you said or you did things that either were inappropriate or disruptive or maybe not what you want to be as a role model for your family or for your team. And so um, processing things and then revisiting it in 24 hours now again, that's you know the game may be over, but there may be mechanisms to do that, which are very valuable and in professional life could make a difference. You can appeal a decision theoretically. I mean, the, the game's going to be you know won or lost in the moment, but some of these comments and decisions that are made out of emotion in the in the heat of the moment, yeah, can be very disruptive. And so somebody comes at you really hard with a you know I'm not going to do that, and you can't tell me what to do. Step back
0: mm-hmm. and
1: say, Okay, time out. I'm going to invoke this 24 hour rule and we're going to process this when emotions are not so high. Right. It's been a very valuable tool for me. Now, my wife would say, Are you joking? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but in the workplace and in the professional life, I think that time out, that 24 hour rule before you respond to a, a bad email or somebody sends you an inflammatory email that you want to really just Put it on hold, keep it in the draft mode, wait 24 hours, review the the original inciting issue and the, the one that you were formulating to send to make sure it's appropriate you don't say something that you regret 24 hours later. It's been invaluable to avoid bad decisions and responses to inflammatory disruptive behavior um, by email for sure. So I put it so there's plenty of emails I just had to throw away. Because 24 hours later, I said, wow, that would have been really bad if I, if I got after that.
0: So anyway, another thought. It's a brilliant thought because what I found is that emotion regulation of all the sort of characteristic like capacities that we're trying to get, you mentioned grit and resilience and things like that. Emotion regulation might be the most universal that I've seen. You just mentioned a big one on the professional level, a big one. I've even gone so far as to, I'm going to write this email in a Word doc first you know what i mean and if i just so i don't accidentally send it and if i have to come back to it you know i'll, I'll copy paste but but you know this as well as i do you know it, it is it valuable professionally absolutely is it valuable emotion regulation in your romantic or social relationships absolutely. oh my gosh yeah boy. <laughs> you know and don't send hot, it you're right right but then and then the, uh, you know i thought of this the other day you know and And that is absolutely true. We talk about how universal this is. You think about, you know, some of the, um, you know, we talked about some of the work that I was doing just a couple days ago. Um, There are also situations where emotion regulation in a moment could very literally be um, to be, to just go full side, full polar life or death, um, you know, but, and, and you think about even just the trajectory, this is a very real thing. You think about a kid who's got maybe a strike or two who's, Who's got, you know, a host of things stacked up against him. I'm picturing a specific situation and get gets freaking budged in a lunch line or something that you'd think would be fairly casual. But because emotion regulation may not be there, throws a punch, gets kicked out of school, an entire life trajectory is
1: thrown at a different place. huge issue. So my my football coach in high school, he was a disciplinarian. I knew him since second grade, military school, tough guy. He's in the, state hall of fame, you know, I don't know how many, 300 victories kind of to a team in the conference championship. We were 17 and 0, trying to go 18 and 0, and we're down, you know, by two touchdowns to this team. I had a bunch of guys who played in the NFL on that team. Guy named Tim Sherwin, Tim Sherwin, really great tight end. Um, He was a tough, brutal kid. Anyway, so we're down and this kid, Cole our quarterback, and and um, really could have hurt him, but knocked him out of the game. So we had our second-string quarterback. We're down two touchdowns, and this kid was just killing us. So uh, the coach says, you know what? You guys cannot get emotional. Cool head, win game. Mm-hmm. That was his motto. And he said, composure under duress will define you. Wow, yeah. Wow, and so we said, holy shit, where did that come from? This is a football coach. And so he said, so, but his message was, if you maintain your cool, we'll win the game. And sure enough, we won the game. There you go. Uh, I, Of course, I had a big run. And uh, and this kid, but anyway, so it was a lot of fun. And uh, we were 18 and all, And, you know, number one small school in the state in New York. That's amazing. And uh, this guy, and so to this day, I use that in the operating room.
0: Yeah, of course. When,
1: when things are going to hell and, you know, the aorta falls apart, bleeding everywhere, and the nurses are scrambling around, the, the associates are scrambling, everybody's scrambling around. And I said, everybody just stop, chill, maintain a cool head, and we will get through this.
0: Oh, my God. And so
1: so the leader has to maintain some level of composure in that context. And so it's it's been fun. So I say that, lean across to the resident across me whisper he said cool head will win the game just chill and uh and so it's weird I'm just so lucky lucky and I said but inside I'm looking at the mirror it says holy smokes where he could have been emotional with this guy who played in the NFL and said he got you know it's a cheap hit he didn't allow his emotions to affect his decision making and his leadership of the team so instructive and I to this day I carry
0: that with me cool head win game so anyway you, I'm telling you right now. I you, so I mentioned that my godfather was a, was a surgeon. So was my grandfather. I I've got a lot of nurses and people like that. I got the chills there in a way that I haven't for a while. It's just so it's so powerful. The the thought that the, the modeling and the language used by your high school football coach may very well have saved or or people's lives. Oh, many of the opportunities, dozens, dozens
1: yeah. of people. Oh, geez. so much. I, I think I'm the guy doing the survey, of course. But my right. composure during duress yes. may have had an impact. And it was influenced by some of the lessons I learned as a young person. Right. And 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 took them to heart. So I think well, that's a I mean,
0: You're you're the Tom Brady. This is in the sense that, like No, no well, way, but well, in, in the sense that, you know, um, there's the skill set, but in order for the skill set to shine, like yeah. the mindset has to sort of take over. Like the like, cool under pressure. It reminds me, I say this. You know, motion emotion um, is usually a pretty good indicator. Like, like it's—it's it's worth listening to. If you're angry, examining why am I angry? If you're frustrated, you know, it, it's usually a pretty, good, pretty good at pointing in direction. But it's usually also a very blunt tool. I- I- emotion, you know what I mean? So, oh, it, man, it'll, yeah, it'll point you, but it can't get you. So, the ability to sort of um, listen to what's going on, understand—even in this case—the intensity and the and the importance of the situation but come to a place of cool to make split level, uh, you know, nuanced decisions. I mean, that's just the thing. I've, in fact, that that oftentimes will fold into, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of working, as I mentioned, with some leaders who, uh, a lot of them just have, have come from sport. Now they're in business or whatever it might be. You can tell that there is, in a lot of cases, an animal just below the surface, Right. <laughs> And, and the key, I use this term sometimes, uh, you, you can't pull back a boardroom, meaning, you know, you can't have that kind of mentality. It can be there, but the power uh, and the, the control, the harnessing that thing, and, you know, whatever that is, and being, and, and selectively applying your skill set in a chaotic situation, man. Yeah. That's a differentiating. factors. So pays dividends. Pays dividends. Yeah, without question. And you just nailed, like, I don't know a more important situation. You talk about a business decision, please. Like there's an exposed heart. Yeah. Involved. Well, it's not, it's not perfect, but it, it works. Um, yeah. You know, in many cases. So thank you. I, I countless things to thank you. Um, countless lives impacted by you. Um, mine in a, in a less direct way than the scalpel has, has, you know, I've, i learned lessons from you. I'm very glad to sit down today. I love, you know, you and your family are just amazing people. Um, you're changing lives. you you're, you're, you're braving and and, and setting a course for others uh, in meaningful ways. And we could not be more pleased uh, with this opportunity. And we're excited to share your messages with our audience. Do you need business cards? Do you need flyers, posters, custom thank you notes, or any sort of stationery to take your business to the next level? If so, then you've got to see the good people at Mighty Printing. They've got two locations. One of them is up north in Glencoe, Illinois. The other is right in the heart of Chicago on 180 West Washington Street. They do most of the printing for the Good Athlete Project and we just could not do our business without them. They've also worked with teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago Blackhawks. They've worked with Let Us Entertain You Restaurant Group. They do holiday cards. They do wedding cards. They help you. They help you not only celebrate special occasions but make them that much more special. And like I said, if you are a small business owner or a large business owner they will give you the sort of personalized service combined with incredibly high quality goods you just can't find that combo honestly anywhere else find them online at mightyprint.com that's M-I-T-E print P-R-I-N-T dot com and on Instagram same thing at mightyprint M-I-T-E print and tell them the Good Athlete Project sent you